Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Good afternoon, and welcome to today's Commonwealth Club discussion with Michael Milken to cover Michael's new book, Faster Cures, Accelerating the Future of Health. My name is Chris Erickson. I'm the managing partner at Jackson Square Partners, an investment firm in San Francisco. The Jackson Square Partners Foundation is pleased to provide support for this and other great programs at the club. Today's discussion is obviously virtual, but the club is back to a full suite of in-person discussions at its beautiful headquarters in San Francisco. To learn more about the club, its upcoming programs, and how to become a member at this exciting time, please visit the club's website at www.commonwealthclub.org. Our company, like many investment firms, has a great interest in the future of medicine and medical treatments. We care from a patients of all ages perspective, and we care because faster cures will not only transform healthcare, but our entire world, including the world of business. No one knows these issues better than our guest today, Michael Milken. He's, of course, a legendary financier, but he's also spent a good portion of his life working on innovations in healthcare. His new book focuses on that topic, including not only his experience as a patient, but also the work being done on these issues at the Milken Institute. Today's program with Michael will be moderated by Lonnie Chen, an expert on health and public policy at the Hoover Institution and Stanford University. Before turning it over to Lonnie, let me again say that the Jackson Square Partners Foundation is pleased to provide support for this event and for the Commonwealth Club. Thank you again for being here. Lonnie, take it away. Well, hello and good afternoon. I'm Lonnie Chen, the David and Diane Steffi Fellow in American Public Policy Studies at the Hoover Institution at Stanford University. And it's great to be back at the Commonwealth Club to moderate our conversation today with Michael Milken. Now, you heard a little bit about Michael already, but he really needs no introduction. Chairman of the renowned Milken Institute and someone who's been at the forefront of leading initiatives on medical research, education, public health, and access to capital for more than four decades. In fact, Fortune Magazine called him the man who changed medicine. And today, we're here to discuss his book, Faster Cures, Accelerating the Future of Health. It's a great book. If you haven't had a chance to take a look at it, part memoir, part a recent history of medicine, part uh, what I would view as a hopeful message about the future of medicine and of healthcare in our country. Uh, I'm thrilled to be here to speak with Michael about his book. I want to offer a special thanks to our sponsor, Jackson Square Partners Foundation, and encourage all of you to visit the Commonwealth Club website to find out more about future programming in San Francisco and online. And so one quick note before we jump into our conversation, if you've got a question uh, for Michael or for me, put it in the YouTube chat box and we'll get questions forwarded to me and I'll do my best to get to as many of them as possible. So with that, let me, uh, let me get into the program and get into the book. Welcome, Michael. It's great to be with you. Uh, thank you for taking the time to do this. Um, I want to start uh, with an observation that I made after reading this book. Two words that stood out to me over and over again in reading this book. One is optimism, and the second is perseverance. Now, this is uh, true whether we're talking about your own personal uh, history, your fight against cancer, your family's health struggles, uh, but also just the tremendous medical innovation that you have helped to lead and shepherd over the last several decades. So, uh, let me ask you first, is that a, a fair assessment? Uh, do you think these two words thematically capture uh, what you're trying to get at in the book? And, and I think the more interesting question for me is, where did this come from? Where, where did this hopeful, optimistic uh, spirit come from that's led you to where you are now? Well, every family on the planet 
experiences health challenges. My family is no different. And I wrote this book for a number of reasons. And I would agree with your two assessments. One, hope, opportunity. And the mirroring here of, let me get a little drink, of technology. Technology has changed medicine to such a degree. So it was the 1970s. I had a number of economic theories from my days at Berkeley and Wharton. They all proved to be successful, but my father was diagnosed with cancer, and I concluded that science could not move fast enough to save his life. No matter how many cancer centers we visited, it wasn't a question of access to capital here. It was the fact that science couldn't move fast enough to save his life. And one and three presidents have lost a child to, to some life-threatening disease. And so it isn't a question of power and access that a president would have. The second is the constant feeling that failure is around the corner, that we can't overcome challenges. And so by documenting these things in history, uh, today there's a chance now to cure a person of a life-threatening disease in their own lifetime. And so I document each of these that I personally lived. One, my father had polio. And in the 50s, people said, we're going to have to build, build iron lung hotels. And it might bankrupt the country. And if you've ever visited the CDC, the Center for Disease Control, in Atlanta, you can actually see people that were interviewed who were kept alive in these iron lungs. But a few years later, we had a solution and a vaccine from Salk. And a lot of people were scared to take this vaccine. In fact, less than 1% of all teenagers had taken this vaccine a year and a half later. And it wasn't until Elvis Presley went on the Ed Sullivan show, a popular show of my youth, and got vaccinated that within a year, 80% had all been vaccinated. So I live with polio, AIDS that affects so many of us as we think about the last decades. The most popular talk show host, Oprah, went on television and told us that one in five Americans were going to die in the next three years. One in five. Obviously, we've lost many people to AIDS, but today it's increasingly controlled. And when you look at a place like Sub-Saharan Africa, where the most people living with AIDS today, we're seeing a doubling of life expectancy in one generation. And lastly, COVID, 2020. Some of the officials, most senior officials in California told us one in two Americans in the state of California would have COVID within 60 days. Five million would have to be hospitalized and we only have 100,000 beds. So the predictions didn't become accurate or true because of innovation, technology, And today, what might have taken five years might happen in a week. And so in the case of COVID, 
It was only nine weeks, 63 days from the sequencing of the virus to the first human. So, yes, I couldn't be more optimistic. And obviously, one of the reasons I wrote this book is a concern that we've geared up because of COVID. We created unprecedented you know, partnerships between academic centers, government, and private industry that we never saw before. And now that it's wound down, are we going to return to where we were before? And so I think that is the concern which we have. Plus, obviously, health affects everyone on this planet. And so this is an area that's dominated my life since I discovered when I was a little kid that my dad had polio as a kid. And the the personal stories uh, and vignettes that are sprinkled throughout the book are really uh, a great way to relate some of the progress we've seen in science and technology. And to your point, uh, in fact, I think there's a graph at some point in the book where you talk about just the massive increase in life expectancy we've seen over the course of the last 150 years and how it eclipses the increases in life expectancy in all of human history. And it's it's a remarkable set of, of advances. I, I want to go back to this personal moment in the book because I, I think people um, uh, really ought to understand how so much of your life's experience recently was had come out of really difficult times, and and in particular your own diagnosis with cancer, and and how it was that uh, you know in fact if if you'd probably taken the first medical advice you heard about it, you wouldn't have gone further to figure out you even had cancer. To what extent did that personal experience, and you mentioned your father's experience, but really your personal experience and that of, you talk about your kids having some health struggles as well. To what extent did that inform why you ended up investing so much of your personal time and treasure uh, in advancing medical research? Well, I can't think of anything more important than life, right? And if you ask people today, what is the American dream? It's a dream of freedom to be able to live your life. And it's hard to achieve what your potential is if you don't have good health. We have many education award programs in America. And often when I'm interacting with young kids in elementary schools, I just think about how hard it was for them just to get to school. Forget the learning in school but the challenges they have to overcome. And the, the old phrase that you have plans and then life gets in the way. So everyone uh, has their life interrupted by a friend, a loved one, a relative, a family member who's been diagnosed with a, senior, with a serious life-threatening disease. And we talk about that individual, but it affects the entire family. It might affect the entire for-profit organization or the organization itself. And so it's part of everyone's life. And I, and I wrote these personal stories so people understood it was part of my life. When someone tells you you've been diagnosed with cancer, what we found is most people don't remember anything they told you in the next hour. You're now thinking, what's it about? And so it was no different for me. I was a donor for two decades, and now I was diagnosed with cancer. And as I pursued 
my own condition, every result got worse. And I eventually went to the head of the department. He told my wife, Lori, and I, we should get a psychologist for the kids and a psychiatrist for us and get our affairs in order. And that was 30 years ago. And I just told him, well, we have time to do that. We might try a few other things first. So, you know, the idea that uh, you have to constantly gather personal and inner strength to overcome these challenges. What I would say I've discovered in interacting with individuals who have had life-threatening diseases that I applied in my own case was they do as little as possible at the beginning. And so when you should maybe do far more, they do little. And later with reoccurrence, they're willing to do anything to stay alive. And so the initial diagnosis of the problem or the challenge, it's very important that you get the right treatment at the right time. And so I had lost 10 relatives to cancer, and my diagnosis was worse than all of them. So I had to figure out what was I going to do different from that standpoint. But what is the first thing you think about when you're diagnosed with a life-threatening disease? Are you going to see your children grow up? Are you going to make it to when they're married? Are you going to see grandchildren? How much of your family's life are you going to share in? And so these are the same thoughts I had and my wife Lori had. We're no different than anyone else. And I think I wrote those stories to try to say to everyone, we're just like you. This is the path we chose, but we have the same fears and concerns that you have. And science today holds many of the solutions if you will pursue and be determined on finding out what the available solutions are. And yes, there's my family, 10 grandchildren, three children, three spouses, and I have a T-shirt now that says I'm number 17, okay? So I've gone from 1 to 17, but I couldn't be happier. Well, it's it's a remarkable a story of how you overcome that and then, of course, direct your understanding and experience and that of your family's experience to uh, investing so much in advancing medical research. So I want to turn to to that and ask you a little bit about – there's two concepts uh, that come up again in, in – um, how you think about how we advance medical research. And two things that you emphasize. One is speed. Speed matters when you're thinking about the uh, evolution of of cures, the evolution of technology. And the other thing that I noted uh, is you, you, you look at youth, right? You're investing in scientists at the beginning of their careers, people who going forward might uh, at some point down the road end up coming up with some significant medical breakthrough. How did you come to this concept of understanding that these two things, speed and youth, were going to be so significant and important to the development of medical technology and innovation? Well, one, speed. What are the elements of speed? Understanding in the 70s, 50 years ago, that science was not moving fast enough to save my father's life or millions of other people that were dying's lives you had to figure out how you could accelerate. Now, there's a couple ways to do that. One 
is increase funding. So for a number of years, we spent our time focused on increased funding. Now, thousands of people had tried to get a doubling of the NIH unsuccessfully. And what what we concluded was there were a thousand different diseases constantly appealing to governmental officials. And so what we analyzed was we would focus on one disease, cancer. But in order to focus on cancer, we had to let all the other groups, whether it was Parkinson's, Alzheimer's, diabetes, know that they would benefit. A doubling would double their funding. So, But we needed to focus on, at that point in time, the big C. And if people thought you were diagnosed with cancer, you were going to die. Now, that was a long time ago, and the world is totally different today, and there's 15 or 16 million people in the United States living normal lives who had cancer. And so we visited with more than 50% of the Senate and about a third of the House and got them focused on this concept of ending cancer by doubling the NIH budget. We had to bring a half a million people to the country in order to make this point around the country, but particularly in D.C. And Al Gore, who was the vice president at the time, once he saw this occurring, kicked off this program. And two months later, President Clinton signed into law the doubling of the NIH budget. And there's been a half a trillion dollars in incremental funding unadjusted uh, for inflation, but a half a trillion by the federal government since we put on that march. So you want to accelerate things, you have to invest in them. When you think about assets, and this was kind of my focus at Berkeley, this concept of human capital that later Gary Becker won a Nobel Prize in 92 for, that the human capital, if I just took the United States, is estimated to be about $1,500 trillion. So if we could increase the human capital of the country by 2% or $30 trillion, it's more than the entire gross national product of the country. And by eliminating just cancer as a cause of death, it was, we estimated it was worth $50 trillion to the U.S. economy. So we brought out an economic argument. The second element that you understand fully well is people and talent. So I personally spent years trying to recruit the best and brightest to go into a field of bioscience. And we started this Young Scientist Award you spoke about. When you look at many of the breakthroughs in science over the years, One, you look through and see Watson was 26 years old when they were writing about the concept of DNA. And as you go through them, we concluded that if we could recruit the best and brightest young people, hundreds or thousands of them, to work in the field of bioscience and at the same time bring capital we could change the course of history and accelerate the solutions. And so you needed both people and you needed financial capital 
to be able to accelerate the change at the time. And at the time, this idea in the 80s that everything was in your blood, it was a great idea, but you couldn't prove it. You couldn't sequence anything. And so we started in the 90s having people store blood with the idea that someday we could analyze and figure out what to do. And could we have diagnosed it a decade or two earlier? Today, it's a reality. And so the first sequencing of the human genome, more than 10 years, 3 billion. Today, maybe $150 in an hour or two. So the promise of technology is with us today that didn't exist. So you now have the marriage of technology, talent, and capital. But there was one other factor that we saw during COVID particularly that that delayed the onset of the speed and faster cures. And that was the fact that we had people unwilling to adopt what we knew. And as you know, the United States of the developed countries is one of the least vaccinated countries in the world. So other countries, 80, 80 percent vaccinated. The United States, uh, we're looking at probably 66, 67 percent. And so we made this analogy to a train. They have a new magnet train in Japan traveling. It doesn't even touch the tracks now, but you can travel in Europe or Asia at almost 200 miles an hour. The average train in the United States travels at the same speed it did 100 years ago, 55 miles an hour. And so if you think of science like the train, the train is moving at a certain speed, not because of technology and science, but because the tracks were built in the 19th or 20th century, and we have to replace the tracks. And Getting information out to clinicians and getting people to understand what the latest potential treatment for their patients is, is kind of the last step in this acceleration. Um, you mentioned COVID, and, and I, I want to use that as a bridge to talk a little bit about our, our healthcare system in America, because one of the things that I think COVID highlighted is both the enormous strength of our healthcare system. We have, I think, the world's most innovative healthcare system. We have the world's most um, uh, significant healthcare system when it comes to dealing with very complex illnesses and diseases. And yet we have a challenge, as you know, which is that uh, too many people don't have access to basic healthcare. And if they do, they don't have access to the right healthcare. And so what I'm wondering is, based on your many years of experience and work in the field, what do you think the biggest challenge is that our healthcare system faces right now? What's the biggest challenge? And then on the flip side, what's the biggest opportunity we have? Well, the technology is there today. So let's talk about the challenges. One, we have to make sure our clinicians have knowledge of the latest treatments. If we step out of the United States for a moment and go to China, for example, If I went to medical school in China 30 or 40 years ago, I never studied diabetes. 
the number of people that had diabetes did not exist. So I did, I'm not knowledgeable of diabetes, but the changing of the food chain in China, the conversion from a plant-based to an animal-based diet, China now has the most people in the world with diabetes and the most people with diabetes that are untreated in the world. So you needed to get this information out to the clinicians. We have those same challenges in the U.S. Second, as you've noted, during COVID, we discovered, yes, we knew we had food deserts. We might have known we had financial deserts where there wasn't a person didn't have a banking account and we wanted to get money to them. But we also have healthcare deserts where there was no medical facilities that were available to the people in the community. And this is so important today. We began an effort that I wrote about with the VA. More than 9 million people are in the VA, an extensive system throughout the country. And so what we decided to do, we were looking at the fact that African-Americans' death rate from prostate cancer was the highest in the world and 100% higher than the general population. So our goal was, let's set up a new system where if I enter the VA, I also enter the leading cancer center. So if I'm in the Seattle area, uh, I'm if I'm in the VA, I'm also at the University of Washington and also at the Fresh Hutchin Cancer Center. And therefore, you're going to get the same quality care. And people that served in the military of our country, we felt deserved at least the same quality of care is the general population. And so what we've seen here in a short period of time, in just six years, is we've been able to reduce the death rate from prostate cancer from African-Americans by 50%. And today, uh, it's the same as the general population because they have entered into a modern treatment protocol. I'd say the, uh, another challenge today is, in America, just the change in weight. Now, most people do not want to be lectured to even a very, very popular Michelle Obama, when she was the first lady, would make suggestions on exercise and diet, but most people didn't adjust. And so we did a report in 2004 showing that just the change in weight in America and seven chronic diseases was costing the country over $1 trillion a year. Now, this idea that nutrition and what you eat can affect your health, when we proposed it in 93, it was not well received. So the response was, prove it. Yes, we have anecdotal evidence that China has a 10% incidence of hormone-driven cancers in the United States, uh, but prove it. You couldn't prove it. You couldn't sequence it. And when I wanted to introduce this concept of the microbiome into research centers, including the NCI, National Cancer Institute, cafeteria, and the National Institutes of Health, there was a backlash. And However, by 2019, if you go to one of our leading cancer 
retreats. 20% of every session is related to the microbiome. So yes, CRISPR technology coming out of the Bay Area allows us to change our genes. Right now, we don't know all the consequences, so it's going to be a number of years before that's widespread. But we can change how your genes are expressed by changing your microbiome, and it only takes seven days to start. What you eat, what you drink, and we now know that there are certain diets that can actually accelerate the growth of certain life-threatening diseases and others that have the ability to slow it down. And so it's made a big difference. And we put forth this idea that this produce section of the grocery store is the pharmacy of the 21st century. So most people don't want to be lectured to, so we wanted to figure out how they could have self-discovery. And one of our approaches was we proposed a new periodic table to be introduced in school. This is the one you or I grew up with. But we proposed another periodic table with fruits and vegetables. What is the purpose of all these fruits and vegetables? What, why are they here? What do they serve? Uh, and if you believe in Darwin's evolution theories, they're supposed to do some good, we assume. And therefore, we've tried to link this. And this is another thing that could eliminate a barrier. The knowledge today of how you can improve the length and quality of your life by just adjusting what you're eating, drinking, and exercise. It's not a new idea, but it's an idea that's now supported by hard science. Yeah, the developments around nutrition and the value of nutrition as part of uh, healthcare, I think, are uh, are really important and remarkable development. One of the other things that's related to, and you talk about this in your book, is the challenge we have in America that a lot of our health outcomes can be predicted based on where we live, based on our zip code, based on uh, the community around us. Um, and it, it's predictable if you go from one part of the Bay Area, where I sit, for example, to another part of the Bay Area, let's say you go from uh, you know, Los Altos or Woodside or Atherton into uh, East Palo Alto or areas that are not as socioeconomically successful, uh, you see massive differences in health outcomes. And I think the question is, how do we begin to address that challenge? I mean, nutrition is one thing, right? If we could improve nutrition broadly, I think that would be huge. But based on, on your experience and insight, how do we address this problem of the massive differences in health outcomes based on just where people live? Well, this is a, an area that we spend a lot of time and effort on at our medical centers in Washington, D.C., health equities. And one of the ways that we're able to do it is bring the costs down. So taking sequencing to $100 or $200 allows you to think about sequencing every patient from that standpoint. Getting people entered into the healthcare systems, opening satellite locations in underprivileged areas and as you've cited here, 
there is a lot of research showing that 20-minute subway ride that you lose six months of life expectancy going from Manhattan up to the Bronx and every minute you travel. And even in the Baltimore area where you have one of the world's leading medical institutions, Johns Hopkins, the difference is almost 20 years in life expectancy from parts of Baltimore out to the suburbs. And so this is an area that not only the Milken Institute, the Center for Faster Cures, our Center for Public Health, our School of Public Health, all these entities has been focusing on how to get people into the data-driven healthcare system so we can improve outcomes. And these outcomes will not only improve the individual's uh, health, but we think will increase their education, energy, their, their goals in life, and bring meaningful lives to people that are not burdened down. We have children in America today diagnosed with type 2 diabetes in their teens. So what they're going to do in their lifetime and how their life is going to be adjusted. But I would say it's not just us, but dozens and dozens of organizations. And in the next two to three weeks, we're going to convene hundreds of people on this topic of how do we get better information these wearable devices that are driving costs down, whether it's a watch, whether it's a patch, allow us to do far better monitoring. And one of the major areas that we know is not monitoring is blood pressure. We could significantly improve if we could look at what levels of blood pressure are in individuals today. So Technology is going to make a difference, uh, but the test that we've done in the VA shows that we can address every social economic level, and once we do provide equal care, we're going to dramatically adjust outcomes. There is another very important factor here into the future, and that is the changing demographics in America. So in America today, we have 70% of everyone that was not born in the United States was born either in Latin America or Asia. 10% to 11% in Africa and 8 to 9% in the Middle East. So as we look at a country where 85% of everyone that was not born in this country in 1960 was born either in Europe or in Canada. Today, that's 10. And so America, in many ways, is changing its face. And the challenge is we have to get a more representative uh, group into clinical trials in this country that represents the population. And so when we look at clinical trials for life-threatening diseases, we have too large a percentage of people that are of European ancestry in that group. And therefore, it does not reflect the population, and the results might not reflect the outcomes. And so it's not only a challenge for the individuals themselves and their families, 
but it's a challenge for the country, for all of us to understand what are the best treatments or outcomes for a very diverse population, not just a Caucasian population today. And and these learnings and these learnings come through uh, a, a lot of different kinds of events in in our history. We've got a question online uh, that I wanted to ask you, and, and the question uh, from the audience is: uh, What do you think the single biggest lesson we learned from COVID was? Uh, you know, talking about challenges and talking about the ways in which our health system responds. We've talked a little bit about this already in terms of the issue of, of vaccine and vaccine development, but what do you think the biggest learning was from that uh, period of the pandemic? One, that science can respond again and again. That was the positive. The negative is that science alone doesn't hold the answer. We have to find a way to communicate better with the citizens of our country or any country on this planet. So just having a solution is not enough unless you get people willing to accept it. And so the day that COVID hit and I had interacted with Moderna nine weeks later, I, I talked to Esther Krofa, who runs Faster Cures for us. And I said, Esther, we got to find Elvis Presley. If Elvis Presley in one year can take us from less than 1% to 80% of the population vaccinated for polio, we could not find an individual, unfortunately, in our country who could play the role of Elvis Presley. Whatever we searched, there was a group that would not support one individual, another group wouldn't support another. And so we really didn't have a person. Maybe if Walter Cronkite was still alive broadcasting on television, it would have made a difference. So I, I think one of the keys to our learning there, and we have spent considerable time documenting this, there are so many positives. The fact that the government put up money for funding the manufacturing of vaccines before we knew they worked building plants before we knew the product they were making work. So there's a lot of positives. The big lesson to be learned is if you have a solution to a problem, it doesn't mean the people will accept that solution. And you're going to find have to find a much better way to communicate that idea to them. Well, and it is interesting because, you know, you know, COVID was really the, the response to that was this remarkable combination of private sector ingenuity, government support. Uh, and, and it's rare that we've seen the public-private partnership work so well as during that period of time. Uh, one of the things that I wanted to ask you about, I mean, speaking of public-private, one of the things that uh, I note is that obviously you've done a lot of work in healthcare and medicine in those areas, but you've also thought more broadly about uh, about how we can create more opportunity in this country. And, and you've got a, a new center that you're standing up here uh, that's going to get started, I, I think, relatively soon, the Center for Advancing the American Dream. Uh, you talk a lot about what that means in the book in terms of the American dream and enhancing opportunity. Talk a little bit about this new center, what you're hoping to accomplish from it, 
and, and what your hopes are in terms of helping to ensure that the next generation of Americans can lead a life that's even better than the ones that their parents or grandparents led. So as, as you probably know, maybe 10 to 15 years ago, we began polling and we noticed that less than 30% of the young people in America felt their life was going to be better than their parents. And it was similar in Europe. Other places around the world, it was totally different. And so we became increasingly concerned that people felt that they wouldn't have a chance at the American dream. And so the younger you were, the less you believed in it. The older you were, the more you believed in it. And so we concluded that we needed to go and build a center for advancing the American dream in Washington. And we're fortunate to be able to buy, buy a series of buildings into the foundations across from the White House and the Treasury in Washington, D.C., to build this center as kind of a beacon of hope. And we're four pillars at the center. One is health and medical research. One is education and the educator. One is financial literacy and the free enterprise system and access to capital. One is the entrepreneur and innovation. But our goal here is one, recognizing that the chance of upward mobility and freedom was not available equally to everyone and try to eliminate those barriers, but two, to shine an example by interviewing 10,000 people as to what they think the American dream, the ideal of the American dream. And that ideal and that belief is alive in sub-Saharan Africa, South Asia, Southeast Asia today, more than it is in the United States. And so the hope is that it will open later this year and completely next year, that will be a beacon of hope and examples. You know, here in Vietnam, we found that one, they all have a favorable opinion of the United States and the American dream. It's a communist country but 95% of people believe in the free enterprise system. So these views vary around the world. And what we found, particularly as we interviewed people in these three parts of the world, Sub-Saharan Africa, South Asia, and Southeast Asia, is the ideal of America, not the country, but the ideal of upward mobility, not based on who your parents were, whether you're a man or a woman, your race, but based on your determination, perseverance that you pointed out at the beginning, that it exists. And it exists today, this belief, far more in other places than it does in the U.S. But they told us constantly whether they were living in Zambia or South Africa or Nigeria or Kenya or Mongolia, that the United States, this belief in this upward mobility was extremely important as a symbol to the world. And I don't think people in America fully realize how important this is that the U.S. be seen as this beacon of hope to the rest of the world. So that's why we set out Today is the 10th anniversary of when we started construction and building. So 
as you pointed out in the beginning, you have to have perseverance. We thought it was going to be four years. It turned out to be 10. But what is constantly reinforced is this concept of building a meaningful life. And one of the keys to building a meaningful life is health. And there's many great leaders who told you the health of the nation is the wealth of the nation over the years. And so we don't think people in the financial world fully realize that 50% of all economic growth in the last 200 years has come from public health and medical research. And this is the key to the growth of our economy and the growth of the potential of human beings. And that is why, you know, we're so focused on this area and why half of the centers of the Milken Institute all relate to uh, medical research, public health, etc. cetera. Uh, we have some specific questions uh, coming in online now about uh, some of that medical research work. And, and in particular, uh, this is an interesting question. What, what's your strategy for thinking about getting more demographic diversity? And the, the question uh, refers specifically to African-Americans in clinical trials. You know, this is a challenge sometimes when you're doing a clinical trial to get the right representative sample of people to make sure there's efficacy and, uh, and, and it can be sort of widespread enough to be an effective formulation. What, what kind of work are you doing around uh, promoting or trying to think about more demographic diversity in the clinical trial process, but also in using technology to change and improve health outcomes? There are a number of things uh, that I would respond here. One, I have personally visited many African-American churches in this country and getting support from their religious leaders for their communities has, has really been a benefit by speaking to them in this area and providing educational information. Two, going to places like the historically black colleges and working with those, uh, if you go to Howard, it, I think, has the largest medical school today of those historically black colleges and getting educating the people that are going to be doctors so they can educate their communities. And so whether it's Asian communities, whether it's Latin American communities, whether it's African-American communities, by getting those young people in those communities and educating them and focused on those issues. We have numerous funding of young scientists, young clinicians that are of Hispanic ancestry, African-American ancestry, uh, Asian ancestry today, and many of them have been active in their community. So we get the leverage of not going one person to one, but by going to the people, they'll be the leaders. We launched a program worldwide with the International Finance Corp, where we train their future leaders. Uh, and they come to either to Washington or London for nine months, and we provide a lot of education. They go to a graduate program plus internships. So by leveraging these areas, this is something that we've done in the educational system by focusing on teachers. And so we have 
almost 200,000 teachers that have participated now in our educational programs. But and as it relates to technology, if India can load the retinas of 1.2 billion people in less than a decade to identify on a technology basis who their citizens are, we have that ability today. If I compare in the early 90s, when people wanted to get representative groups, I remember it took one of the world's leading medical centers 10 years to identify 800 families. So we went on television using that modern technology in the 90s of television and got 3,000 families in one week. Apple today, to get people involved in heart or other programs, could get 10,000 people in an hour to sign up for these programs. So technology and, and in all socioeconomic levels today, most people now have access to a mobile phone. If I cite India, the country that's going to have by far the most number of people in the world, Makesh Ambani has signed up for his new mobile phones, 500 million people in five years, 500 million people now. And so the ability to communicate sub-Sahara Africa 82% of the population now has mobile phones up from four 20 years ago. So technology will allow us to reach people far differently. And someday you'll be able to put a drop of blood or saliva on your little pad on your phone. It'll go through. It'll be sequenced. They'll sequence your DNA. They'll check your blood. And so the reality of being able to identify life-threatening diseases in your blood before you could ever find them before exists with us today. Well, we've reached a point in our conversation where we've really just got time for one more question, a a couple of minutes. And you started into this already, and I just want to keep you headed in this direction, which is as you think about the innovations uh, in healthcare and in medicine that you're seeing every day, the work that's being done Uh, in your institutes, in your schools. Uh, What gives you the most hope? What do you look at and say, that's going to be the specific thing that can really change the course of human history in terms of keeping people well and ensuring that more and more people can live the meaningful lives that you're talking about? I think the excitement of younger people's interest in bioscience, whether it is food, whether it's energy, whether it's health, today, uh, the excitement. Many universities today, you might have 20 to 40% of their students want to major in bioengineering. And so it's the marrying of the technology that's available today. Non-invasive surgery exists today already. Yes, when I was growing up, it was on Star Trek, but it now exists in the real world that you could be treated without breaking your skin with non-invasive, and you could actually get your body cleaned out of cells. And you could, so the promise of this merging of technology today with bioscience 
and the knowledge of people that are in their 20s, 30s, or just in college today is going to change the world. And the sheer fact that one of the individuals that was the most talented that we identified in the 90s to run one of our medical foundations, what he could accomplish in one day as a researcher, a $5,000 machine today could do more than a million times what he could do in 93. And this, this is why Faster Cures and our focus is so important. We're going to be able to solve life-threatening diseases in the person's own lifetime if we will continue with the same passion we did and used during, in partnerships during COVID. Well, uh, Michael, it's been a real pleasure uh, to be able to speak with you about uh, not just your book, but to get your thoughts more broadly on the healthcare system in American society. And again, you know, I'd encourage everyone, if you haven't had a chance to, to read this yet, uh, pick it up and take a look because there are some remarkable stories and vignettes here, not just about Mike's life, but about the lives of people who he's interacted with in his work uh, and the scholarship of all the different people that he's interacted with over these many years being a, a leader in healthcare and medical research. And so again, uh, Mike Milken and your book, Faster Cures and the, and the Accelerating the Future of Health, uh, available uh, from bookstores and from uh, different places where you can uh, where you can buy them, I'd encourage you to do so. I want to thank everyone for joining us today online. Uh, again, check out commonwealthclub.org for the programming that the Commonwealth Club has, a lot of it back to in-person uh, in San Francisco. I want to say another thank you to Jackson Square Partners Foundation for their help and support. And again, thank you to Mike Milken. My name is Lon Hee Chen, and this Commonwealth Club program is now adjourned. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to commonwealthclub.org donate. Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support. Thank you.